You're listening to Accounting Matters, an accounting podcast powered by Embark about accounting matters because accounting matters. From Embark's headquarters in Dallas, Texas, this is Accounting Matters, an accounting podcast powered by Embark. Hi, hello, good afternoon. It's great to be with each of you. I'm Zach Smith, Embark's Tampa market president, and I'm joined with my co-host, Adam Olson, Embark's accounting advisory practice leader. On this week's episode, we're bringing back Matt Schwartz, a managing director in our FAS practice, to continue our discussion on fair value by learning more about the fair value option under ASC 825. Adam, Matt, thanks so much for joining us. Of course. Adam, so we covered all things fair value on a recent podcast for ASC 820. So let's start with a quick overview of the purpose of the fair value option and ASC 825. Yeah, gladly. So US GAAP provides the optionality for reporting entities to elect to apply the fair value measurement basis for certain financial instruments and other items in their balance sheet, even when it's not required by US GAAP. And so that's where ASC 825 comes into play. The fair value option, um, when elected, it's done on an instrument by instrument basis. So you don't have to necessarily carry this across all your eligible instruments, but it is an irrevocable um, election. So once you decide to do it, you're kind of in that fair value land and you can't go back um, in most circumstances. You know, one thing you do have to keep in mind is that when you make the election for fair value um, accounting, um, for an instrument that has that optionality is that it could potentially reduce the comparability of your financial information compared to other um, competitors or peers um, in your group because, or even other instruments within your balance sheet if you decided not to do it for all similar instruments because you have the optionality to do it for some, but not for all. Um, so that's definitely one thing you wanna keep in mind, but there is additional disclosures that we'll get into in today's conversation, which really helps to kind of bridge that gap and you know bring clarity for where an entity has elected to apply the fair value option um, and some of the information about those elections as well. Okay, Matt, switching over to you, you know, Adam mentioned that ASC 825 provides a measurement basis election for most financial instruments, but can you expand on that? It, discuss the items with the scope of the standard, you know, common assets, liabilities, FVO applies to? Yeah, sure. So, you know, as all accounting guidance, really critical first step is just understanding the scope for which the guidance applies. So um, from that perspective, for 825, it is available to all entities. So all entities have this um, availability of the election, um, but it is only available for certain eligible items. And, and it's very prescriptive on what those items uh, consist of. So um, I'm gonna go through kind of the list here. Um, obviously there's gonna be some exceptions to, to everything as there is in, in all accounting guidance. But first one, kind of the highest level is a recognized financial asset or liability. Um, again, with some limited exceptions that we'll cover later. Um, second, a firm commitment that would otherwise not be recognized at inception and involves only financial instruments. So an example of that could be a forward purchase contract for a loan that's not readily convertible to cash. So that commitment involves only a financial instrument, the, the loan and the cash, um, and would not otherwise be recognized because it's not a derivative instrument. Third category would be written loan commitments. And then the next two are, are fairly similar. Um, with the first one, any rights or obligations under an insurance contract that have both the, the following characteristics. 
So the insurance contract is not a financial instrument because it requires or permits the insurer to provide goods or services rather than a cash settlement, as well as the insurance contract's uh, terms permit the insurer to settle by paying a third party to provide those goods or services. Um, the next one, again, very similar to the insurance example, would be any rights or obligations under a warranty that have both the following characteristics. So again, the warranty is not a financial instrument because it requires or permits the warrantor to provide goods or services rather than a cash settlement. And then the warranty's terms permit that warrantor to settle by paying a third party to provide those goods or services. And then the last example is a host financial instrument that results from the separation of an embedded non-financial derivative instrument. So um, that one would, would be uh, a non-financial hybrid instrument under ASC 815. So um, certainly some additional complexities to consider there, but just another example of uh, an instrument that could be available to elect the fair value option. Okay, so a pretty exhaustive list of six items that you've called out that are in scope. Which items though are not eligible for the fair value option election? Yeah, so again, um, definitely go to the guidance. It's very prescriptive on what's <clears throat> in scope and what's not eligible or out of scope. Um, but going through the list here, kind of at a high level, first one being an investment in a subsidiary where the entity is required to consolidate. Um, very similar to that, an interest in a variable interest entity or a VIE um, that the entity is required to consolidate. Um, third one being, and this kind of captures several different um, items, but employers or plan obligations for pension benefits, other post-retirement benefits, including healthcare, life insurance benefits, um, employee stock options, stock purchase plans, anything that really involves a form of deferred compensation arrangement. And, and all of those are obviously covered by their own individual um, accounting topics. Um, next one being financial assets or financial liabilities recognized under leases um, as defined in, in topic 840. Next one, deposit liabilities. So anything that's withdrawable on demand. So think about your banks, savings and loans, institutions, credit unions, things like that. And then the last one being financial instruments that are in whole or in part classified by the issuer as a component of shareholders equity. So that would also include any temporary equity. So an example of that could be convertible debt security um, or convertible debt security with a non-contingent beneficial conversion feature. One other thing, so the, the fair value option can generally not be elected uh, for those items that I just mentioned, really because all those top, all those items or eligible items are covered through some other uh, specific accounting guidance. So there's a specific accounting pronouncement for those items that would supersede anything under the fair value election. One thing just to, to caveat that though, some insurance or investment contracts could, could obviously include features that permit the insurer or the investor to withdraw or otherwise demand amounts specified in the contract. So um, kind of counter to the example I mentioned with demand liabilities with, with banks or credit unions, things like that, those instances where it's an insurance contract or an investment contract wouldn't really fall into that exception because those that exception's purely limited to demand liabilities for those specified types of financial institutions. So um, in this case, an investment or an insurance contract would still be within the scope and be eligible for the fair value option. Um, one thing to consider, however, though, is then in applying that fair value, you would want to make sure that the, the right of the insured or the investor to withdraw money is 
considered and captured within the, the valuation of that item. Okay, so covered a lot of information there, Adam, yep. uh, but a little bit of a better understanding now around the scope of ASC A25, but what are some areas of gap where fair value option election is more relevant? Yeah, there's a few that uh, definitely come to mind where where we see people make the selection uh, maybe more commonly than others. Um, so one area is is related to you know an entity's debt, for example. So instead of determining to carry that debt at the amortized cost um, on an amortized cost basis, and an entity may elect to um, record that debt at fair value, and more so, it's done to really kind of a to present the debt of really what it's worth versus carrying debt at an amortized cost basis and then having a separate hedge on that debt for the fair value. So by electing you know, the fair value option for the debt instrument itself, it really kind of bridges the gap of what a hedge, a separate hedge might achieve. Um, one thing you do have to keep in mind though, is that if you elect the fair value option for your debt, there are a few accounting differences for um, items associated with debt that you have to keep in mind. So particularly on debt issuance costs, which a lot of debt instruments, when you, you know, you issue debt, you're going to incur, you know, oftentimes significant costs associated with that debt instrument. Um, under the fair value option for debt, if you have debt issuance costs, the guidance requires you to expense those costs all immediately upfront. Whereas, you know, Historically, if you had the amortized cost basis for debt, you know, a lot of times those costs can be deferred and then they get amortized over kind of the, the term of the debt itself. So a different kind of recognition period and timing of that recognition for those costs. Um, another area of gap where we tend to see a lot of elections made is really kind of um, one that Matt just touched on, which is around kind of hybrid financial instruments. So a lot of times there can be components um, within a a financial instrument that could require bifurcation and separate accounting. Um, and, and there's a whole set of complex guidance you have to kind of navigate through to apply that and figure out what the answer is going to be. Um, well, one shortcut to avoid applying that is really to elect the fair value option for the hybrid instrument as a whole and not really go through that exercise as of the evaluation of the embedded um, component in those hybrid instruments. So we do see that from time to time where people just decide to fair value the whole instrument and obviously elect the fair value option in those cases. And then really just a couple other areas where you know someone might you know decide to apply the fair value option. It's, it's a more straightforward kind of things you would expect. So investments in like debt securities, for example, are designated as trading. Um, or investments in equity securities that don't have a readily determinable fair value. Thanks, Adam. So follow-up question then would be, why might a company want to elect or not elect the fair value option for an in-scope asset or liability? And what might be some reasons that drive that decision? Yeah, so I know we, we talked about some of the implications just in the common areas where we see it. Um, you know, I, I think there are, there are motivations that can be very entity specific on what they're looking to present or why they're looking to elect it for certain financial instruments. I guess one thing entities need to keep in mind, you know, particularly on certain instruments is that the election can have consequences potentially in areas outside of just the, the financial reporting aspect um, of the fair value option. So if you think about a debt instrument that we just talked about, you know, electing to, um, apply the fair value option to your debt, 
um, could have implications outside the financial statements, particularly if there are certain covenants or regulatory ratios or things like that, where you know a constantly moving debt balance based on fair value of that at each reporting period could have implications on those requirements. You know, similarly, like we talked about the debt issuance costs. You know, again, that's accelerating those expenses up front. So if you just think about like impacts to earnings, you know, how maybe how that might look to users of the financial statements or investors when you've got a, a large upfront charge coming through the election of fair value option for debt. So just just a couple things that you might want to keep in mind. Yeah, you said it, Adam. Elections matter. So Matt, switching to you. So once a company has an understanding of the scope and rationale for electing the fair value option, how does an entity actually do that? And what are some of the key aspects of making this election? Sure. So ASC 825 provides guidance regarding um, not only just the application of the fair value option, but it includes the accounting for its election, timing, presentation. So um, one thing Adam alluded to up front, um, the guidance within 825 permits reporting entities to apply the fair value option on an instrument by instrument basis. So this is not a you know, one size fits all accounting election. So um, with that being said, a, a reporting entity can elect the fair value option for certain instruments, but not others within a group of similar instrument, instruments. So for example, uh, a portion of identical bonds that are issued by the same issuer. However, if the fair value option is not elected for all eligible instruments uh, within a group of similar instruments, the reporting entity is required to disclose the reasons for its partial election. In addition, the reporting entity must disclose the amounts to which it applied the fair value option and the amounts to where it did not apply the fair value option within that group. So the fair value option may be elected for a single eligible item without electing it for all identical items. Um, but as we talked about before, there's always exceptions. So there are four notable exceptions in, in this regard. The first one would be if there's uh, multiple advances made to a borrower pursuant to a, a single contract. So example of that would be like a line of credit or a construction loan. So where those individual advances kind of lose their identity and become a part of a larger loan balance, the fair value option should be applied to the overall larger loan balance, not to each individual advance. Second ex exception would be if the fair value option is applied to an investment that would otherwise be accounted for under the equity method of accounting, it should be applied to all of the investors eligible financial interest in that same entity. So any equity, debt, guarantees, um, any of those eligible items. Third one would be if the fair value option is applied to an eligible insurance or reinsurance contract, it must be applied to all claims and obligations under that contract. And then the last one would be if the fair value option is elected for an insurance contract, so that, that base contract, where there may be integrated or non-integrated contract features or coverages, so sometimes called riders, um, that are issued either concurrently or subsequently, the fair value option must also be applied to all those features or coverages. So in that case, it is everything with under, within that contract, any current or future um, elections or coverages have to be incorporated into that fair value option election. So um, a, a single contract that's deemed to be a financial instrument may not further be separated for the purposes of electing fair value option with one exception, that would be a loan syndication. So in, in a loan syndication arrangement, you could have multiple loans issued to the same borrower 
So under 825 in that example, each of those loans is considered a separate instrument and the fair value option can be elected for some of those loans, but not for others. So again, the key here is there's, there's lots of rules and exceptions. And so obviously going to the guidance to really be clear when you're, when you're looking at and evaluating this is, is pretty critical. Um, just as another example, you know, it, it, when we're applying this kind of guidance in the US, a lot of financial institutions have elected the fair value option when it comes to mortgage loans that they hold um, in it kind of in the pipeline awaiting sale or for a potential securitization. So this election eliminates the need to meet requirements to achieve some of the hedge accounting that Adam was alluding to that can be fairly complex. And it allows for kind of that consistent fair value treatment of the loans, as well as any related derivatives that the company may have to kind of economically hedge the risk of holding those loans. Okay, great. So then the question is, can a reporting entity make the fair value election at any time they choose? Not any time they choose. So again, the, the guidance is fairly prescriptive on when a, a company can elect the fair value option for eligible items. And so um, that's really on the date that one of the following things occurs. So th the first one, the obvious one, the entity first recognizes the eligible item. So you can elect the fair value option basically at, at inception for that eligible item. Um, the second one would be when the entity enters into an eligible firm commitment. Um, the third one would be any financial assets that have been reported at fair value with unrealized gains and losses flowing through earnings because of specialized accounting principles. So what, what that really is getting at as an example would be um, let's take a transfer of assets from a subsidiary that qualified as an investment company. So as an investment company, that entity would already be applying fair value. Um, if those assets were to be transferred to another entity within the consolidated reporting entity, that's not subject to investment company and fair value, this would allow the entity to elect fair value to maintain that fair value treatment and, and consistency going forward. Um, Another one would be uh, the accounting treatment for an investment in another entity changes because the investment becomes subject to the equity method of accounting. And then the last one would be an event that requires an eligible item to be measured at fair value at the time of the event, but does not require fair value um, on a recurring basis at each reporting date after that. So um, with, with the exception of any kind of recognition of impairment under lower cost or market accounting or other than temporary impairment accounting um, for equity securities in accordance with topic 321. So, um, so 825 also discusses when remeasurement should occur. So under the guidance, it requires reporting entities to make a separate decision about whether to elect the fair value option for each eligible item um, as that election date occurs. So entities could elect the fair value option based on kind of a, an overarching pre-existing policy for specified types of eligible items. I think the important thing here for, for listeners to really think about was if you have that policy, it needs to be kind of sufficiently clear so that it's very easy to understand which items the company is electing fair value option for and which they're not. Um, some of the just kind of most common remeasurement items that, that would be um, relevant under 825 would be things like business combinations, uh, consolidation or a deconsolidation of a subsidiary or a VIE, and then any significant modifications of debt under ASC uh, 470. Yeah, so 
Adam, Matt mentioned remeasurement under ASC 825. Yep. So tell me a little bit about what qualifies as a remeasurement event under US GAAP. Yeah, so a remeasurement event is really just an event that occurs that at the time of the event, um, it requires a financial instrument to basically be remeasured to its fair value, but it doesn't necessarily require that financial instrument to be continually re re-fair valued each reporting period. So we mentioned a couple common events would be, you know, a change in control, business combination, you know, modifications to debt. You know, those are common examples, but other areas where a remeasurement event occurs and you more or less have like a new basis of accounting could also include things like, you know, switching from or switching to liquidation basis of accounting or maybe an entity emerging from bankruptcy under fresh start accounting. Those would also qualify as remeasurement events. Um, and I think one one other thing that's kind of important about a remeasurement event, you know, it not only allows another opportunity for reporting entity to elect the fair value option, but you know, in, in the case of like liquidation basis of accounting or fresh start accounting, if an entity previously had elected the fair value option for certain financial instruments under a remeasurement event with this new basis of accounting, they don't have to necessarily continue to elect the fair value option. It's almost like a way to unwind the fair value election for those particular instruments because the new basis of accounting is essentially establishing a new reporting entity. Okay. And so now, Matt, now that we have a better understanding of the election process and the associated timing, what are some of the other considerations that reporting entities should be aware of when they're applying the fair value option? Yeah, so I, I think the, the biggest thing was something that Adam alluded to a little bit earlier, but I think overarching theme would be making sure you understand all of the various reporting implications. So what do we mean by that? You know, ASC 825 requires the immediate recognition of any upfront cost and fees related to items for which the fair value option is elected. So, you know, Adam Adam referred to previously about, um, you know, things like deferred costs. So in, in the case of an insurance contract, a reporting entity should not recognize any kind of deferred acquisition cost related to the contract. Um, similarly, if it was uh, an election for a loan receivable, the reporting entity wouldn't recognize any deferred loan origination fees or costs related to that loan. So really, when you think about that, that it's that immediate recognition of income or expense that are associated with the item that you're potentially applying the fair value option for, um, where, you know, absent that election, you, you would have a significantly different kind of both pattern and presentation of income and expense recognition. So again, just something to really kind of think about when, when you're looking at this guidance and applying it is to think not only about the individual eligible item for which you're applying fair value, but all the other reporting implications that, that you may want to consider. Um, you know, because in those cases that I explain, those fees would have to be expensed um, or, or recognized immediately up front and would be recorded in current earnings in, in you know, whatever applicable expense or revenue account that is. So it could be salaries, legal fees, um, other fee revenue, things like that. Yeah, pa pattern and presentation indeed. Adam, any other unique timing and presentation matters our listeners may want to look out for? Yeah, well, I guess there's one um, particular nuance around the timing of the fair value option election that's that's actually just more relevant right now, especially for private companies when we're thinking about the upcoming um, adoption of the new credit law standard that's required. 
Um, there was an additional ASU issue back in 2019, which more or less allowed entities that are going to adopt um, kind of the new CECL credit loss standard to have the ability to elect the fair value option for any existing um, loan receivables or other financial assets at amortized costs that are within the scope of that standard, even if they were already existing. So, you know, Matt mentioned that when you're making the election, it's usually done at the origination of a financial asset um, or at the inception of that contract. Um, this this election here for this ASU is really just allowing them the ability to go back and apply it to existing instruments if they choose to do so. Um, and it really was just to allow the opportunity that if an entity was planning to elect the fair value option for newly issued financial assets to allow comparability between all of their financial assets and have them all be um, qualified for that fair value option election. Okay. So then does the fair value option, if elected by the reporting entity, have to be applied on an entity-wide basis? I think where I'm going with this is if a subsidiary is required to elect the fair value option for a particular financial instrument and it's separate reporting, if the parent company has elected the fair value option for the instrument for consolidated reporting. Yeah, so the FASB actually did consider the, you know, whether or not they wanted to require kind of an entity-wide approach to the fair value option election. You know, as you mentioned, you know, having a subsidiary have to require the application of fair value option if their parent were to elect it or vice versa. And ultimately what they decided in separate reporting, each reporting entity can make its own elections you know, whether or not to apply the fair value option to, um, you know, in-scope financial instruments. And this was really designed, you know, as a way to not prevent people from making the election by requiring all reporting entities within a reporting structure to have to apply that same election. Okay. So Matt, throwing it back over to you, any special considerations that we need to keep in mind when considering subsequent accounting for changes in fair value? Yeah, there's definitely one that comes to mind that that's a little bit more nuanced. Um, and that's when it relates to a company that has elected the fair value option to measure its own liabilities. So and bear with me here for this one, because this I'm going to go back and forth here. But when an entity's so in the example where an entity's credit deteriorates, that credit deterioration is then going to drive an increase in the interest rate that would be used to discount the cash flows for that entity. And that increase in the interest rate would then uh, drive a decrease in the fair value of that liability, which would result in an accounting gain. So there's a lot there, a lot of ups and downs. But the, the other side of that then would be when an entity's credit improves, that would drive the interest rate down. It would drive the fair value of the liability up and it would result in an accounting loss. So kind of a counterintuitive impact on profit and loss when it comes to the reporting of an entity's own liabilities at fair value. So FASB kind of recognized this um, counterintuitive impact here and included guidance within 825 to ensure that the effect of changes within a company's own credit risk um, flows through other comprehensive income or OCI under the guidance. Okay. And Matt, we couldn't wrap things up without talking about disclosure requirements. What are some of the key disclosures for assets and liabilities under the fair value option that we should be thinking about and discussing? Sure. So I'm going to start as always with a caveat that for the full you know, listing of all the various disclosure requirements, definitely go directly to the guidance. 
Um, there's an entire section there and it can get somewhat nuanced with all the different um, requirements. What I'd like to kind of say is, is, is really focusing on what the main objective is of the uh, disclosure requirements under 825. And we talked about it kind of at, at the beginning up front and, and really it's to facilitate comparability. Because with this option, you know, kind of counter to a, a lot of gap, there's, there's a lot of optionality here. You, you don't have to apply it on an entity-wide basis. You don't have to apply it for every single instrument. So it really is an instrument by instrument election and that can potentially decrease the comparability. So when we think about the main objectives here, it's really twofold. It's one, um, facilitating comparability from the perspective of comparison between entities that choose to um, measure different assets and liabilities differently, as well as comparisons within a reporting entity um, that chooses you know, different elections for certain assets and liabilities within their own reporting structure. So um, really when it comes to the, the disclosure requirements, as opposed to going through and, and, and rattling off every single different requirement, um, which would take a long time, really it's, it's, let's talk about what's the expected result of the requirements. So really four things. Um, one, information to enable the users of the financial statements to understand management's reasons for electing or partially electing the fair value option. Second, information to enable users to understand how the changes in fair value affects earnings for the period. Third, the same information about certain items, so such as equity investments or non-performing loans that would have been disclosed if the fair value option had not been elected. So, you know, certain things that you just can't get away from regardless of whether you choose that option or not. And then last, information that enables the users to understand the differences between the fair values and the contractual cash flows for certain items. So again, be sure to go to the guidance for a complete list of all the disclosure requirements. A lot of it is very consistent with what we talked about in the disclosure requirements under ASC 820, um, but there's certainly some nuances as it applies to 825 specifically in the fair value option. Perfect, Matt, this was super helpful. Thank you so much for your time today. Adam, always a pleasure, never a chore. <laughs> Same. <laughs> Hey, everybody, thanks so much for joining us for this week's episode of Accounting Matters, Fair Value Options with ASC 825, here with Matt Schwartz, uh, MD in Embark's FAS practice, and Adam Olson, the FAS practice leader. Thanks so much, guys. Thank you. Thank you. This podcast is for general informational purposes only. Embark makes no representation or warranty as to the accuracy or completeness of the information contained in the podcast series and it should not be used as a substitute for consultation with professional advisors. Information discussed in our podcast may also be superseded by new guidance or as new interpretations emerge. Listeners are cautioned to carefully evaluate any relevant subsequent authoritative guidance issued.